Chapter 18, Part 2 of The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Lincoln Brooks. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 4. Return to Venice. Chapter 18, Part 2. The disappearance of Stefani was the talk of Venice, but I did not inform the charming countess of that circumstance. It was generally supposed that his mother had refused to pay his debts and that he had run away to avoid his creditors. It was very possible. But, whether he returned or not, I could not make up my mind to lose the precious treasure I had in my hands. Yet I did not see in what manner, in what quality, I could enjoy that treasure, and I found myself in a regular maze. Sometimes I had an idea of consulting my kind father, but I would soon abandon it with fear, for I had made a trial of his empiric treatment in the Rinaldi affair, and still more in the case of Labadie. His remedies frightened me to that extent that I would rather remain ill than be cured by their means. One morning I was foolish enough to inquire from the widow whether the lady had asked her who I was. What an egregious blunder! I saw it when the good woman, instead of answering me, said, Does she not know who you are? Answer me and do not ask questions, I said, in order to hide my confusion. The worthy woman was right. Through my stupidity she would now feel curious. The tittle-tattle of the neighborhood would, of course, take up the affair and discuss it, and all through my thoughtlessness. It was an unpardonable blunder. One ought never to be more careful than in addressing questions to half-educated persons. During the fortnight that she had passed under my protection, the countess had shown me no curiosity whatever to know anything about me but it did not prove that she was not curious on the subject. If I had been wise, I should have told her the very first day who I was, but I made up for my mistake that evening better than anybody else could have done it, and after having told her all about myself, I entreated her forgiveness for not having done so sooner. Thanking me for my confidence, she confessed how curious she had been to know me better, and she assured me that she would never have been imprudent enough to ask any questions about me from her landlady. Women have a more delicate, a surer tact than men, and her last words were a home thrust for me. Our conversation, having turned to the extraordinary absence of Stefani, she said that her father must necessarily believe her to be hiding with him somewhere. He must have found out, she added, that I was in the habit of conversing with him every night from my window, and he must have heard of my having embarked for Venice on board the Ferrara barge. I feel certain that my father is now in Venice, making secretly every effort to discover me. When he visits this city, he always puts up at Bon Cousin. Will you ascertain whether he is there? She never pronounced Stefani's name without disgust and hatred, and she said she would bury herself in a convent 
far away from her native place where no one could be acquainted with her shameful history. I intended to make some inquiries the next day, but it was not necessary for me to do so, for in the evening at supper-time Monsieur Barbaro said to us, A nobleman, a subject of the Pope, has been recommended to me, and wishes me to assist him, with my influence, in a rather delicate and intricate matter. One of our citizens has, it appears, carried off his daughter, and has been hiding somewhere with her for the last fortnight, but nobody knows where. The affair ought to be brought before the Council of Ten, but the mother of the ravisher claims to be a relative of mine, and I do not intend to interfere. I pretended to take no interest in Monsieur Barbaro's words, and early the next morning I went to the young countess to tell her the interesting news. She was still asleep, but, being in a hurry, I sent the widow to say that I wanted to see her only for two minutes in order to communicate something of great importance. She received me, covering herself up to the chin with the bedclothes. As soon as I had informed her of all I knew, she entreated me to enlist Monsieur Barbaro as a mediator between herself and her father, assuring me that she would rather die than become the wife of the monster who had dishonored her. I undertook to do it, and she gave me the promise of marriage used by the deceiver to seduce her, so that it could be shown to her father. In order to obtain Monsieur Barbaro's mediation in favor of the young countess, it would have been necessary to tell him that she was under my protection, and I felt it would uh, injure my protégé. I took no determination at first, and most likely one of the reasons for my hesitation was that I saw myself on the point of losing her, which was particularly repugnant to my feelings. After dinner, Count A.S. was announced as wishing to see Monsieur Barbaro. He came in with his son, the living portrait of his sister. Monsieur Barbaro took them to his study to talk the matter over, and within an hour they had taken leave. As soon as they had gone, the excellent Monsieur Barbaro asked me, as I had expected, to consult my heavenly spirit, and to ascertain whether he would be right in interfering in favor of Count A.S. He wrote the question himself, and I gave the following answer with the utmost coolness. You ought to interfere, but only to advise the father to forgive his daughter and to give up all idea of compelling her to marry her ravisher, for Stefani has been sentenced to death by the will of God. The answer seemed wonderful to the three friends, and I was myself surprised at my boldness, but I had a foreboding that Stefani was to meet his death at the hands of somebody. Love might have given birth to that presentiment. Monsieur de Bragadin, who believed my oracle infallible, observed that it had never given such a clear answer, and that Stefani was certainly dead. He said to Monsieur de Barbaro, you had better invite the Count and his son to dinner here to-morrow. You must act slowly and prudently. It would be necessary to know where the daughter is before you endeavor to make the father forgive her. 
Monsieur Barbaro very nearly made me drop my serious countenance by telling me that if I would try my oracle, I could let them know at once where the girl was. I answered that I would certainly ask my spirit on the morrow, thus gaining time in order to ascertain beforehand the disposition of the father and the son. But I could not help laughing, for I had placed myself under the necessity of sending Stefani to the next world, if the reputation of my oracle was to be maintained. I spent the evening with the young countess, who entertained no doubt either of her father's indulgence or of the entire confidence she could repose in me. What delight the charming girl experienced when she heard that I would dine the next day with her father and brother, and that I would tell her every word that would be said about her. But what happiness it was for me to see her convinced that she was right in loving me, and that, without me, she would certainly have been lost in a town where the policy of the government tolerates debauchery as a solitary species of individual freedom. We congratulated each other upon our fortuitous meeting and upon the conformity in our tastes, which we thought truly wonderful. We were greatly pleased that her easy acceptance of my invitation, or my promptness in persuading her to follow and to trust me, could not be ascribed to the mutual attraction of our features, for I was masked, and her hood was then as good as a mask. We entertained no doubt that everything had been arranged by heaven to get us acquainted, and to fire us both, even unknown to ourselves, with love for each other. Confess, I said to her in a moment of enthusiasm, and as I was covering her hand with kisses, confess that if you found me to be in love with you, you would fear me. Alas, my only fear is to lose you. That confession, the truth of which was made evident by her voice and by her looks, proved the electric spark which ignited the latent fire. Folding her rapidly in my arms, pressing my mouth on her lips, reading in her beautiful eyes neither a proud indignation nor the cold compliance which might have been the result of a fear of losing me, I gave way entirely to the sweet inclination of love and, swimming already in a sea of delights, I felt my enjoyment increased a hundredfold when I saw, on the countenance of the beloved creature who shared it, the expression of happiness, of love, of modesty, and of sensibility, which enhances the charm of the greatest triumph. She had scarcely recovered her composure when she cast her eyes down and sighed deeply. Thinking that I knew the cause of it, I threw myself on my knees before her, and speaking to her words of the warmest affection, I begged, I entreated her, to forgive me. What offense have I to forgive you for, dear friend? You have not rightly interpreted my thoughts. Your love caused me to think of my happiness, and in that moment a cruel recollection drew that sigh from me. Pray, rise from your knees. Midnight had struck already. I told her that her good fame made it necessary for me to go away. I put my mask on and left the house. 
I was so surprised, so amazed at having obtained a felicity of which I did not think myself worthy that my departure must have appeared rather abrupt to her. I could not sleep. I passed one of those disturbed nights during which the imagination of an amorous young man is unceasingly running after the shadows of reality. I had tasted but not savored that happy reality, and all my being was longing for her, who alone could make my enjoyment complete. In that nocturnal drama, love and imagination were the two principal actors. Hope, in the background, performed only a dumb part. People may say what they please on that subject, but Hope is in fact nothing but a deceitful flatterer, accepted by reason only because it is often in need of palliatives. Happy are those men who, to enjoy life to its fullest extent, require neither hope nor foresight. In the morning, recollecting the sentence of death which I had passed on Stefani, I felt somewhat embarrassed about it, I wished I could have recalled it as well for the honor of my oracle, which was seriously implicated by it, as for the sake of Stefani himself, whom I did not hate half so much, since I was indebted to him for the treasure in my possession. The Count and his son came to dinner. The father was simple, artless, and unceremonious. It was easy to read on his countenance the grief he felt at the unpleasant adventure of his daughter, and his anxiety to settle the affair honorably. But no anger could be traced on his features, or in his manners. The son, as handsome as the god of love, had wit and great nobility of manner. His easy, unaffected carriage pleased me, and wishing to win his friendship, I showed him every attention. After the dessert, Monsieur Barbaro contrived to persuade the Count that we were four persons with but one head and one heart, and the worthy nobleman spoke to us without any reserve. He praised his daughter very highly. He assured us that Stefani had never entered his house, and therefore he could not conceive by what spell, speaking to his daughter only at night and from the street under the window, he had succeeded in seducing her to such an extent as to make her leave her home alone, on foot, two days after he had left himself in his post-chaise. Then, observed Monsieur Barbaro, it is impossible to be certain that he actually seduced her, or to prove that she went off with him. Very true, sir, but although it cannot be proved, there is no doubt of it. And now that no one knows where Stefani is, he can be nowhere but with her. I only want him to marry her. It strikes me that it would be better not to insist upon a compulsory marriage, which would seal your daughter's misery, for Stefani is, in every respect, one of the most worthless young men we have amongst our government clerks. Were I in your place, said Monsieur de Bragadin, I would let my daughter's repentance disarm my anger, and I would forgive her. Where is she? I am ready to fold her in my arms, but how can I believe in her repentance when it is evident that she is still with him? 
Is it quite certain that in leaving C, blank, she proceeded to this city? I have it from the master of the barge himself, and she landed within twenty yards of the Roman gate. An individual, wearing a mask, was waiting for her, joined her at once, and they both disappeared without leaving any trace of their whereabouts. Very likely it was Stefani there waiting for her. No, for he is short, and the man with the mask was tall. Besides, I have heard that Stefani left Venice two days before the arrival of my daughter. The man must have been some friend of Stefani, and he has taken her to him. But, my dear Count, all this is mere supposition. There are four persons who have seen the man with the mask and pretend to know him, only they do not agree. Here is a list of four names, and I will accuse these four persons before the Council of Ten, if Stefani should deny having my daughter in his possession. The list, which he handed to Monsieur Barbaro, gave not only the names of the four accused persons, but likewise those of their accusers. The last name, which Monsieur Barbaro read, was mine. When I heard it, I shrugged my shoulders in a manner which caused the three friends to laugh heartily. <laughs> Monsieur de Bragadin, seeing the surprise of the Count at such uncalled-for mirth, said to him, This is Casanova, my son, and I give you my word of honor that if your daughter is in his hands, she is perfectly safe. Although he may not look exactly the sort of man to whom young girls should be trusted. The surprise, the amazement, and the perplexity of the Count and his son were an amusing picture. The loving father begged me to excuse him with tears in his eyes, telling me to place myself in his position. My only answer was to embrace him most affectionately. The man who had recognized me was a noted pimp whom I had thrashed some time before for having deceived me. If I had not been there just in time to take care of the young countess, she would not have escaped him, and he would have ruined her forever by taking her to some house of ill fame. The result of the meeting was that the count agreed to postpone his application to the Council of Ten until Stefani's place of refuge should be discovered. I have not seen Stefani for six months, sir, I said to the Count, but I promise you to kill him in a duel as soon as he returns. You shall not do it, answered the young Count very coolly, unless he kills me first. Gentlemen, exclaimed Monsieur de Bragadin, I can assure you that you will neither of you fight a duel with him, for Stefani is dead. Dead? said the Count. We must not, observed the prudent Barbaro, take that word in its literal sense, but the wretched man is dead to all honor and self-respect. After that truly dramatic scene, during which I could guess the denouement of the play was near at hand, I went to my charming Countess, taking care to change my gondola three times, a necessary precaution to baffle spies. I gave my anxious mistress an exact account of all the conversation. 
She was very impatient for my coming, and wept tears of joy when I repeated her father's words of forgiveness. But when I told her that nobody knew of Stefani having entered her chamber, she fell on her knees and thanked God. I then repeated her brother's words, imitating his coolness. You shall not kill him unless he kills me first. She kissed me tenderly, calling me her guardian angel, her savior, and weeping in my arms. I promised to bring her brother on the following day, or the day after that, at the latest. We had our supper, but we did not talk of Stefani or of revenge, and after that pleasant meal we devoted two hours to the worship of the God of love. I left her at midnight, promising to return early in the morning. My reason for not remaining all night with her was that the landlady might, if necessary, swear without scruple that I had never spent a night with the young girl. It proved a very lucky inspiration of mine, for, when I arrived home, I found the three friends waiting impatiently for me in order to impart to me wonderful news which Monsieur de Bagadin had heard at the sitting of the Senate. Stefani, said Monsieur de Bragadin to me, is dead, as our angel Paralis revealed it to us. He is dead to the world, for he has become a Capuchin friar. The Senate, as a matter of course, has been informed of it. We alone are aware that it is a punishment which God has visited upon him. Let us worship the author of all things, and the heavenly hierarchy, which renders us worthy of knowing what remains a mystery to all men. Now we must achieve our undertaking, and console the poor father. We must inquire from Paralis where the girl is. She cannot now be with Stefani. Of course God has not condemned her to be a Capuchin nun. I need not consult my angel, dearest father, for it is by his express orders that I have been compelled until now to make a mystery of the refuge found by the young countess. I related the whole story, except what they had no business to know, for, in the opinion of the worthy men who had paid heavy tribute to love, all intrigues were fearful crimes. Monsieur Dandolo and Monsieur Barbaro expressed their surprise when they heard that the young girl had been under my protection for a fortnight. But Monsieur de Bragadin said that he was not astonished, that it was according to Kabbalistic science, and that he knew it. We must only, he added, keep up the mystery of his daughter's place of refuge for the Count, until we know for a certainty that he will forgive her, and that he will take her with him to see blank, or to any other place where he may wish to live hereafter. He cannot refuse to forgive her, I said, when he finds that the amiable girl would never have left C if her seducer had not given her this promise of marriage in his own handwriting. She walked as far as the barge, and she landed at the very moment I was passing the Roman gate. An inspiration from above told me to accost her and to invite her to follow me. She obeyed as if she was fulfilling the decree of heaven. I took her to a refuge impossible to discover and placed her under the care of a God-fearing woman. 
my three friends listened to me so attentively that they looked like three statues. I advised them to invite the Count to dinner for the day after next because I needed some time to consult Paralis de modo tenendi. I then told Monsieur Barbaro to let the Count know in what sense he was to understand Stefani's death. He undertook to do it, and we retired to rest. I slept only four or five hours, and dressing myself quickly, hurried to my beloved mistress. I told the widow not to serve the coffee until we called for it, because we wanted to remain quiet and undisturbed for some hours, having several important letters to write. I found the lovely countess in bed, but awake, and her eyes beaming with happiness and contentment. For a fortnight I had only seen her sad, melancholy, and thoughtful. Her pleased countenance, which I naturally ascribed to my influence, filled me with joy. We commenced, as all happy lovers always do, and we were both unsparing of the mutual proofs of our love, tenderness, and gratitude. After our delightful amorous sport, I told her the news, but love had so completely taken possession of her pure and sensitive soul that what had been important was now only an accessory. But the news of her seducer having turned a capuchin friar filled her with amazement, and, passing very sensible remarks on the extraordinary event, she pitied Stefani. When we can feel pity, we love no longer, but a feeling of pity succeeding love is the characteristic only of a great and generous mind. She was much pleased with me for having informed my three friends of her being under my protection, and she left to my care all the necessary arrangements for obtaining a reconciliation with her father. Now and then we recollected that the time of our separation was near at hand. Our grief was bitter, but we contrived to forget it in the ecstasy of our amorous enjoyment. <sighs> Why cannot we belong forever to each other? the charming girl would exclaim. It is not my acquaintance with Stefani. It is your loss which will seal my eternal misery. But it was necessary to bring our delightful interview to a close, for the hours were flying with fearful rapidity. I left her happy, her eyes wet with tears of intense felicity. At the dinner-table, Monsieur Barbaro told me that he had paid a visit to his relative, Stefani's mother, and that she had not appeared sorry at the decision taken by her son, although he was her only child. He had the choice, she said, between killing himself and turning friar, and he took the wiser choice. The woman spoke like a good Christian, and she professed to be one, but she spoke like an unfeeling mother, and she was truly one, for she was wealthy, and if she had not been cruelly avaricious, her son would not have been reduced to the fearful alternative of committing suicide or of becoming a Capuchin friar. The last and most serious motive which caused the despair of Stefani, who is still alive, 
remained a mystery for everybody. My memoirs will raise the veil when no one will care anything about it. The Count and his son were, of course, greatly surprised, and the event made them still more desirous of discovering the young lady. In order to obtain a clue to her place of refuge, the Count had resolved on summoning before the Council of Ten all the parties, accused and accusing, whose names he had on his list, with the exception of myself. His determination made it necessary for us to inform him that his daughter was in my hands, and, and Monsieur de Bragadin undertook to let him know the truth. We were all invited to supper by the Count, and we went to his hostelry, with the exception of Monsieur de Bragadin, who had declined the invitation. I was thus prevented from seeing my divinity that evening, but early the next morning I made up for lost time, as it had been decided that her father would on that very day be informed of her being under my care, we remained together until noon. We had no hope of contriving another meeting, for I had promised to bring her brother in the afternoon. The Count and his son dined with us, and after dinner Monsieur de Bragadin said, I have joyful news for you, Count. Your beloved daughter has been found. What an agreeable surprise for the father and the son. Monsieur de Bragadin handed them the promise of marriage, written by Stefani, and said, This, gentlemen, evidently brought your lovely young lady to the verge of madness when she found that he had gone from C-blank without her. She left your house, alone, on foot, and as she landed in Venice, Providence threw her in the way of this young man, who induced her to follow him, and has placed her under the care of an honest woman, whom she has not left since, whom she will leave only to fall in your arms as soon as she is certain of your forgiveness for the folly she has committed. Oh, let her have no doubt of my forgiving her, exclaimed the father, in the ecstasy of joy, and turning to me, Dear sir, I beg of you not to delay the fortunate moment on which the whole happiness of my life depends. I embraced him warmly, saying that his daughter would be restored to him on the following day, and that I would let his son see her that very afternoon, so as to give him an opportunity of preparing her by degrees for that happy reconciliation. Monsieur Barbaro desired to accompany us, and the young man, approving all my arrangements, embraced me, swearing everlasting friendship and gratitude. We went out, all three together, and a gondola carried us in a few minutes to the place where I was guarding a treasure more precious than the golden apples of the Hesperides. But, alas, I was on the point of losing that treasure, the remembrance of which causes me even now a delicious trembling. I preceded my two companions in order to prepare my lovely young friend for the visit, and when I told her that, according to my arrangements, her father would not see her till on the following day, "'Ah!' she exclaimed with the accent of true happiness. "'Then we can spend a few more hours together. Go, dearest, go and bring my brother.' I returned with my companions, 
but how can I paint that truly dramatic situation? <laughs> oh, how inferior art must ever be to nature. The fraternal love, the delight beaming upon those two beautiful faces, with a slight shade of confusion on that of the sister, the pure joy shining in the midst of their tender caresses, the most eloquent exclamations followed by still more eloquent silence, their loving looks which seem like flashes of lightning in the midst of a dew of tears, a thought of politeness which brings blushes on her countenance when she recollects that she has forgotten her duty towards a nobleman whom she sees for the first time. And finally, there was my part, not a speaking one, but yet the most important of all. The whole formed a living picture to which the most skillful painter could not have rendered full justice. We sat down at last, the young countess between her brother and Monsieur Barber on the sofa, I opposite to her on a low footstool. To whom, dear sister, are we indebted for the happiness of having found you again? To my guardian angel, she answered, giving me her hand to this generous man who was waiting for me, as if heaven had sent him with the special mission of watching over your sister. It is he who has saved me, who has prevented me from falling into the gulf which yawned under my feet, who has rescued me from the shame threatening me, of which I then had no conception. It is to him I am indebted for all, to him who, as you see, kisses my hand now for the first time. And she pressed her handkerchief to her beautiful eyes to dry her tears, but ours were flowing at the same time. Such is true virtue, which never loses its nobleness, even when modesty compels it to utter some innocent falsehood. But the charming girl had no idea of being guilty of an untruth. It was a pure, virtuous soul which was then speaking through her lips, and she allowed it to speak. Her virtue seemed to whisper to her that, in spite of her errors, it had never deserted her. A young girl who gives way to a real feeling of love cannot be guilty of a crime or be exposed to remorse. Towards the end of our friendly visit, she said that she longed to throw herself at her father's feet, but that she wished to see him only in the evening, so as not to give any opportunity to the gossips of the place. And it was agreed that the meeting, which, which was to be the last scene of the drama, should take place the next day towards the evening. We returned to the Count's hostelry for supper, and the excellent man, fully persuaded that he was indebted to me for his honor, as well as for his daughter's, looked at me with admiration, and spoke to me with gratitude. Yet he was not sorry to have ascertained himself, and before I had said so, that I had been the first man who had spoken to her after landing. Before parting in the evening, Monsieur Barbaro invited them to dinner for the next day. I went to my charming mistress very early the following morning, and, although there was some danger in protracting our interview, we did not give it a thought, or, if we did, it only caused us to make good use of the short time that we could still devote to love. 
after having enjoyed, until our strength was almost expiring, the most delightful, the most intense voluptuousness in which mutual ardor can enfold two young, vigorous, and passionate lovers, the young countess dressed herself, and, kissing her slippers, said she would never part with them as long as she lived. I asked her to give me a lock of her hair, which she did at once. I meant to have it made into a chain like the one woven with the hair of Madame F., which I still wore round my neck. Towards dusk, the Count and his son, Monsieur Dandolo, Monsieur Barbaro, and myself, proceeded together to the abode of the young Countess. The moment she saw her father, she threw herself on her knees before him, but the Count, bursting into tears, took her in his arms, covered her with kisses, and breathed over her words of forgiveness, of love, and blessing. What a scene for a man of sensibility! An hour later we escorted the family to the inn, and after wishing them a pleasant journey, I went back with my two friends to Monsieur de Bragadin, to whom I gave a faithful account of what had taken place. We thought that they had left Venice, but the next morning they called at the place in a peota with six rowers. The Count said that they could not leave the city without seeing us once more, without thanking us again, and me particularly, for all we had done for them. Monsieur de Bragadin, who had not seen the young Countess before, was struck by her extraordinary likeness to her brother. They partook of some refreshments, and embarked in their peota, which was to carry them, in twenty-four hours, to Ponte di Lago Oscuro, on the River Po, near the frontiers of the Papal States. It was only with my eyes that I could express to the lovely girl all the feelings which filled my heart. But she understood the language, and I had no difficulty in interpreting the meaning of her looks. Never did an introduction occur in better season than that of the Count to Monsieur Barbaro. It saved the honor of a respectable family, and it saved me from the unpleasant consequences of an interrogatory in the presence of the Council of Ten, during which I should have been convicted of having taken the young girl with me, and compelled to say what I had done with her. A few days afterwards we all proceeded to Padua to remain in that city until the end of autumn. I was grieved not to find Dr. Gozzi in Padua. He had been appointed to a benefice in the country, and he was living there with Bettina. She had not been able to remain with the scoundrel who had married her only for the sake of her small dowry, and had treated her very ill. I did not like the quiet life of Padua, and to avoid dying from ennui, I fell in love with a celebrated Venetian courtesan. Her name was Ancilla. Some time after, the well-known dancer Campioni married her and took her to London, where she caused the death of a very worthy Englishman. I shall have to mention her again in four years. Now I have only to speak of a certain circumstance which brought my love adventure with her to a close after three or four weeks. Count Medini, a young, thoughtless fellow like myself, 
and with inclinations of much the same cast, had introduced me to Anchila. The Count was a confirmed gambler and a thorough enemy of fortune. There was a good deal of gambling going on at Anchila's, whose favorite lover he was, and the fellow had presented me to his mistress only to give her the opportunity of making a dupe of me at the card table. And, to tell the truth, I was a dupe at first. Not thinking of any foul play, I accepted ill luck without complaining. But one day I caught them cheating. I took a pistol out of my pocket, and aiming at Medini's breast, I threatened to kill him on the spot unless he refunded at once all the gold they had won from me. Anchila fainted away, and the Count, after refunding the money, challenged me to follow him out and measure swords. I placed my pistols on the table and went out. Reaching a convenient spot, we fought by the bright light of the moon, and I was fortunate enough to give him a gash across the shoulder. He could not move his arm and had to cry for mercy. After that meeting, I went to bed and slept quietly. But in the morning, I related the whole affair to my father, and he advised me to leave Padua immediately, which I did. Count Medini remained my enemy through all his life. I shall have occasion to speak of him again when I reach Naples. The remainder of the year, 1746, passed off quietly without any events of importance. Fortune was now favorable to me and now adverse. Towards the end of January, 1747, I received a letter from the young Countess, A.S., who had married the Marquis of... Blank. She entreated me not to appear to know her, if by chance I visited the town in which she resided, for she had the happiness of having linked her destiny to that of a man who had won her heart after he had obtained her hand. I had already heard from her brother that, after their return to C, her mother had taken her to the city from which her letter was written, and there, in the house of a relative with whom she was residing, she had made the acquaintance of the man who had taken upon himself the charge of her future welfare and happiness. I saw her one year afterwards, and if it had not been for her letter, I should certainly have solicited an introduction to her husband. Yet peace of mind has greater charms even than love. But when love is in the way, we do not think so. For a fortnight I was the lover of a young Venetian girl, very handsome, whom her father, a certain Ramon, exposed to public admiration as a dancer at the theater. I might have remained longer her captive if marriage had not forcibly broken my chains. Her protectress, Madame Cecilia Valmarano, found her a very proper husband in the person of a French dancer called Binet, who had assumed the name of Binetti and thus his young wife had not to become a Frenchwoman. She soon won great fame in more ways than one. She was strangely privileged. Time, with its heavy hand, seemed to have no power over her. 
she always appeared young. Even in the eyes of the best judges of faded, bygone female beauty, men, as a general rule, do not ask for anything more, and they are right in not racking their brain for the sake of being convinced that they are the dupes of external appearance. The last lover that the wonderful Binetti killed by excess of amorous enjoyment was a certain Moskiewski, a Pole whom fate brought to Venice seven or eight years ago. She had then reached her sixty-third year. My life in Venice would have been pleasant and happy if I could have abstained from punting at Bassett. The ridotti were only open to noblemen who had to appear without masks, in their patrician robes, and wearing the immense wig which had become indispensable since the beginning of the century. I would play, and I was wrong, for I had neither prudence enough to leave off when fortune was adverse, nor sufficient control over myself to stop when I had won. I was then gambling through a feeling of avarice. I was extravagant by taste, and I always regretted the money I had spent, unless it had been won at the gaming table, for it was only in that case that the money had, in my opinion, cost me nothing. At the end of January, finding myself under the necessity of procuring two hundred sequins, Madame Manzoni contrived to obtain for me from another woman the loan of a diamond ring worth five hundred. I made up my mind to go to Treviso, fifteen miles distant from Venice, to pawn the ring at the Mont de Piet, which there lends money upon valuables at the rate of five per cent. That useful establishment does not exist in Venice, where the Jews have always managed to keep the monopoly in their hands. I got up early one morning, and walked to the end of the Canale Reggio, intending to engage a gondola to take me as far as Mestra, where I could take post-horses, reach Treviso in less than two hours, pledge my diamond ring, and return to Venice the same evening. As I passed along St. Job's Quay, I saw, in a two-oared gondola, a country girl, beautifully dressed. I stopped to look at her. The gondoliers, supposing that I wanted an opportunity of reaching Mestra at a cheap rate, rode back to the shore. Observing the lovely face of the young girl, I do not hesitate, but jump into the gondola and pay double fare on condition that no more passengers are taken. An elderly priest was seated near the young girl. He rises to let me take his place, but I politely insist upon his keeping it. End of chapter 18, part 2